Hey everyone, welcome back to Game in Hand. It's March 1st at the time of recording, and I am going to stick to my promise. We are going to start moving to two episodes a month. After a few recommendations, I am going to try and get two concise episodes, not only to kind of stay relevant to the news that I talk about after, but also accept that just some games are maybe only just impression-worthy and uh, <laughs> maybe just too long and dry to fit into, I don't know, 40 minutes to talk about GRPGs or something. I will be going over what is currently my 55 hours of 11th hours game action RPG last epoch. While this game has kind of been in development for quite some time, it just hit 1.0 in its quote-unquote polished state on the 21st. While I'm going to save some of the juicy bits for further into the podcast, uh, they kind of made some big ambitious expectations by announcing all these 1.0 features, which to be honest, I couldn't tell you right now if they truly lived up to what they hyped them to be. So if I had to describe Last Epoch in my own words, it would be an action RPG that was made solely on the fact that people loved Diablo 2 so much and they couldn't adjust to what Diablo 3 had become. Despite the fact, you know, Diablo 3 was quite the very successful and approachable title to the masses. I think it really brought on a new arcade type action to the Diablo series, which, for better or for worse, is what it is. Last Epoch kind of had some strong ambitions, to be fair, and I don't know right now if they're living up to the hype that has been generated around this title, but all in all, it's kind of been a fan-faithful Diablo 2 inspired action RPG. If I had to say anything, I think this is Diablo 2 how it should have felt with Diablo 3-esque mechanics. They definitely stole some stuff from Path of Exile, and as far as my knowledge of this game goes all the way back to 2019. I think when the first kind of rough edges were put together and we had early access, and duping was definitely, definitely, definitely a problem. It's easy to say this game has come quite a ways, although definitely a little bit janky just in the the story itself. It is kind of interesting, but I mean, come on. Anytime you're dealing with multiple timelines, jumping back and forth, like, do you even have a writing team with such legendary potential that's going to make it all make sense or kind of fall into an appropriate path? Path of Exile, yeah, there's a story that I couldn't possibly care less about. Even though I played it for six years and then finally did uh, a playthrough actually reading the story, which makes it kind of make sense. But realistically, after Chapter 1 and Last Epoch, I started skipping every dialogue, and to be honest... I don't really give the story writers a fair opportunity to maybe flex some of the good writing or maybe, you know, some of the funny quips or good side quests that they might have. But to be honest, if you want to talk story, I am not your target market, so I can't really tell you how good the story is. When it comes to gameplay, though, I feel like I can weigh in. Uh, I've played three classes so far to the end game, four now, uh, Warlock, Druid, Runemaster, and Hammerdib. Warlock and Runemaster kind of had a, the advantage over all the other classes that they were released on 1.0 and were apparently just so OP. I started building a druid because they were just kind of touted as like the de facto hardcore class to play. And then of course, just because you can and you should, I built a Hammerdin because I mean, come on, who has played Diablo 2 and 
and thinks they can escape playing a Haberdon. I love the fact that they start you out with Hammer Throw as kind of like a core skill built into the base class, which allows you to basically pick any other subclass archetype that you want that might be able to build in Hammerdin as kind of a staple. So it's easy to say of the four classes that I've played so far, at least they're all like super interesting and fun. Druid has unlimited variety because each of their like shapeshift forms comes with a whole like subset of skills that tie into the base skills if you choose to enhance them. So while I'm, I've probably cherry picked some of the funner classes or maybe the more OP classes because I did take a quick glance at kind of like the tier list but didn't really stick specifically to the tier list. So I don't think anyone is going to really suffer for whatever class they want to play. And even though there are tier lists, I feel like just the game itself even leading up into early endgame content, you shouldn't really be deterred to just play whatever you want or make four druids and have completely different builds every single time. I will say though, the uh, progress through the story kind of sticks to Path of Exile and classic Diablo. You do have to progress through the whole thing and it does feel kind of long-winded. You're definitely going to want to get a TP to the end of time and kind of skip ahead in content once you can appropriately start fighting monsters of that level. But since this is an early impressions episode, I guess I can just give you my early impressions of the what should be close to 60 hours of gameplay I have in this title. While I don't feel like I want to say anything is the end-all be-all of what this situation currently is in the game, I feel like this game is really panned out to be the Diablo 4 substitute that I enjoy, even though it might not be like a AAA caliber type game. I'm definitely feeling a lot better having spent $45 on this game than I did spending full price on Diablo 4 and their quote-unquote content in seasons. There are a lot of dank memes on Reddit right now, mostly just talking about how Diablo's talent tree is more just kind of like a talent twig, whereas Last Epoch gives you a full-on tree for every single skill for every single skill, every single subclass, to the point where you almost consider that they went too hard in depth to tailor every single skill to how you could make a complete build just surrounding them. Like I said, they did make the characters feel a lot more substantial, and it's not just about having the one piece of gear that makes you pick your subclass. You unlock your subclass, I think, as early as level 16, or if you get ported to the, uh, the end of time kind of like hub, and then once you put 20 points into your base class, then you can start assigning into all the other three subclasses, which was a surprise. When you pick your subclass, you unlock the mastery for that class, and it allows you to proceed up to a certain point with the other two subclasses. So if you're able to get, I don't know, easy intelligence, maybe some survivability, you can always just go into that tree. But just know that you have to put in a certain number of skills into that subclass until you'll be able to unlock future skills. And I have to say, I think I really like it. It's really smart that it makes characters kind of have proper invested interest rather than just being able to hit a button and just redo whatever you want without any consequence. And I'm talking consequence, not an arbitrary and pointless amount of gold to respect like what you could do in Diablo 4 for whatever balance change might have happened mid-month, mid-season. And to be fair, I know... I've seen a couple comments and I kind of like feel it too. It does feel like when you have to re-spec a skill 
or for example, get rid of a skill completely so that you can use, uh, progress a different skill. It does feel like a kind of weird game lengthening technique, which I mean, you can go into every single ARPG and point out where the game lengthening point is or was. But like I said, it really helps you not just jump to or have to focus on whatever the flavor of the month is for your ultra min-maxed character every time something goes up 2% and something goes down 2%. It's also not incredibly difficult to say if you want different skills, up leveling them up isn't terrible when you get into the later game. And it's kind of great that you can level two trees separately. And I'm talking skill trees, like skills have skill trees and passives have the passive tree. It does go into kind of like a crazy level of path of exile depth where skills start synergizing with other skills that are kind of like baked in deep into some of these trees. At least that's what I experienced with the four classes that I played. For some classes though, you do have to worry about skills casting other skills having a mana cost because it's not just like a free proc on cast. You have to be able to afford the spell that's being casted at any point. Playing in hardcore has been kind of nice feeling. I don't think it's kind of deviated from kind of the core aspect of hardcore. You definitely need to have at least a couple defensive skills that you build your class around. Uh, if you're going into the end game, you're going to want to maximize resistances, which we're not just looking at four or five resistances anymore. I think there is eight total, uh, fire, ice, lightning, uh, physical, void, poison. I'm sure I'm forgetting something else, but it doesn't make it a little bit daunting to make sure that you're capped if that's your, your prime worry. And it's easy to say that we've gotten to the point where we have gotten our resistances to a comfortable level and our friend group has still lost characters to just general rare mobs. Uh, I personally have died to a story boss who ended up being, a, I guess, a little more of a big deal than the other bosses. And I think I was missing like 25% resistance on fire before I got one shot by touching the edge of a fireball. There's always going to be that kind of constant worry about being one shot if, you know, positioning is not your priority, but it's good. The one thing that I feel like it last epoch kind of stands out with is its resource management. And it's like you can play Diablo 4. Diablo 4, I think you got comfortable enough that resources like mana never felt. Resource management has always been kind of like a key focus. I felt in Diablo 4 there were always situations where you could basically get unlimited mana or everything was essentially free. In last epoch, you definitely have to work a lot harder for it. And you want to be stacking mana regen to get to that point. Big spells always had their cost, and what made it even worse when you spec into specific aspects of these big spells, there was always one point where it'd be like, hey, would you like to double your damage? I'm like, yeah, I want to double my damage. It's like, cool, this skill's going to cost 80% more mana. I'm like, okay, well, it's like, I can manage that. And then you realize the third step up in that tree is like, okay, well, how, about, how would you like a third step in this? And you're like, okay, it's just like, how much is it going to cost? And it's like, 80% again and you're like oh I'm gonna be able to cast this thing like four times before I run out of mana and it always kind of kept me cognizant that I can but I'd have to work harder to be able to just rapidly cast any spell so you definitely have to be cognizant that there are skill spill there are spells that will effectively double your damage but basically come with doubling your mana cost other than that I'm happy to say you can kind of just treat it like every other action RPG combat was super fluid and fun and engaging it wasn't like early Diablo 4 where you'd be fighting 
three mobs and you'd be like, wow, this is really good pack density. Like Diablo 4's endgame when you hit the whatever, level 60, not counting when you were basically starting the grind and regrind at level 40 or whatever, but when you get into dungeons with actual pack density, Last Epoch gives this to you right outside of like the first main town that you go to. You actually had hordes of mobs to contend with and it was fun and you actually worry about being properly surrounded. So like I said, this game has a lot of strong traits that kind of makes me advocate it over Diablo 4. And for that matter, let's talk about itemization. Last Epoch definitely feels like a 1.0, but it does have kind of a focus on very specific substats in item comparisons. Last Epoch definitely feels like uh, a 1.0. Sometimes you have to just kind of accept that this is a smaller dev team working on a massive MMORPG. There are some things that need to be hammered out. Uh, loot filters are very welcome, but I still feel like they're kind of like in the infant state. Because we can talk about substats, and let me start by saying the item comparison for the tooltip is basically useless. I wouldn't even bring it up. But unlike early problems with Diablo 3 and even what I would consider Diablo 4's kind of laundry list of substats that just kind of like became pointless and had to be edited out, you know, after whatever, two seasons, they finally listened to your feedback. I'm gonna stop harping on this, but like Last Epoch keeps its affixes and suffixes fairly concise. You know exactly what you're getting. You know exactly when there's a certain kind of flavor text that you should be looking for. You know when an int class wants int. It's kind of surprising when you realize there are other substats that you want to try and focus on getting, like druids need attunement, for example. Not just dex, not just strength. The one really cool and kind of like nostalgic point that they took from Diablo 2, at least it felt like they took it from Diablo 2, was the concept of charms. And, but this, they didn't want you to just have your charms in your inventory. They made an entirely different equipment section just for idols that you have to do your inventory Tetris with. It's, non, it's a concept that I feel really helps out and just kind of takes the strain off of rolling perfect armor and weapon kind of itemization to the point where these idols are basically giving you that extra 20 to 30 percent in areas that you need to focus on whether it be defensively or offensively and of course it gives you access to uniques i mean the only one that i've found so far is singularity so i can't really say how good some of the other unique idols are but idols are really neat they took a, a kind of different approach which when i think about it it's cool but it also adds kind of like a layer of weirdness for example like you could be looking uh, at the implicit bonus for a wand it could roll anything from like pure lightning spell damage pure focus on necromancy focus on like melee elemental damage it was kind of weird it did kind of suck that you're always looking for one specific implicit or having to go look up a guide to figure out when you're going to hit the next tier that's going to give you the best implicit for your class but it was actually kind of nice that you could look for specific weapons. It was nice just kind of feeling that you weren't looking for any generic two-handed staff that could fit in your hand slot, like other ARPGs. Sometimes though, it doesn't work in your favor, like you might be looking for a specific weapon, 
And then you're looking just for like crazy substats like, okay, well you you want this axe, but you definitely want to find the, the role that focuses purely on minions and mana regen on a two-handed axe. So it was kind of weird, but I, in kind of retrospect, I think there were a lot less obstacles to the grinding of gear that made Last Epoch really quite approachable, though definitely appropriate for the fact that they had to implement a loot filter. And I kind of just want to mention one more thing before I move on. I do want to point out that there's kind of uniques that kind of just work in the proper way. And I know I talked about this before, but in Diablo 4, when you found a unique, it was build changing. You built your entire build around that one unique. Like think back to Diablo 2. You were making any one of your builds and hey, you found a Mars necklace, you found a, a, an NSOJ. It's like, that's easy. You could put that in and you already had that plus one bonus to exactly what you wanted to do. In this game, it also feels like they have those aspects. There's a lot of like plus one to all skills, a plus one to all physical skills, like staffs and stuff. And rather than completely altering the, their build, they just give you a boost to what you want to focus on. Like in Diablo 4, I never felt that this was the way. You were always building your build around the item that you found that completely changed it. Like imagine playing druids as whatever the, the tornado werewolf build, you know, you're shooting tornadoes, but imagine not having the werewolf hat that allows tornadoes to be considered a wolf skill and those tornadoes knocking you out of wolf mode until you get that hat. You're not going to play that build until you're ready because you're just going to be hamstring yourself. And Diablo 4 definitely didn't make it very penalizing to not just bounce between whatever you wanted whenever you wanted. And so again, Diablo 4 felt like uniques determining your class build, whereas in this game, your class build dictates your class build. There's always going to be like certain uniques that stand above the rest, but really in any game, it's not like they're exclusive. And I feel like Path of Exile, Last Epoch, and Diablo really had different concepts or approaches to this. And while I probably wouldn't say one was better than the other, I definitely jive with Last Epoch's kind of loot-targeted grinding without being told that I have to target a world boss spawn that might show up every hour, or lol, you can't get these from red Helltide chests, you gotta go to the green Helltide chests. It's kind of the core loop that makes Path of Exile feel worthy, more for the fact that there's not just one thing you have to do at the end game. Diablo 4 is kind of like the epitome of soulless grind, and I can't shake the feeling that they got far too many cues from the Diablo Immortals direction team. I kind of stuck this at the end, but maybe it's because I have a little bit, I want to pump Last Epoch's tires a little bit more, but we have to give credit to Diablo 4 where credit is due. Diablo 4 had some slight rubber banding in the stress test, and I think the first three days there was a little bit shaky things with regards to zone transitions and kind of just like grouping wise. It's hard not to look at Epoch in the state that it is in right now because they're going through initial server hugs of death thanks to initial hype. Online play has been gradually been getting a lot better. Like, especially today, for example, originally transitioning towns was impossible because you had 200,000 people trying to bounce between like the first 10 zones. Sometimes it might take five seconds to transition, sometimes, you know, five minutes. 
It's usually after 30 seconds, sometimes it's just faster to Alt F4 and try again. Sometimes you wouldn't transition with your party and end up in separate instances. Sometimes your party's instances would be just unjoinable and cause you to disconnect. When I was looking at this Steam listing, for recent reviews anyways, 31% of upsetty babby downvoting this game are people who are in like the 20 hour zone and are just complaining about this. Like they've never played an MMO on launch. Literally the first day, every single streamer and creator was playing the game. But you know, what was that secret streamer queue? Like, were they getting prioritized like in Path of Exile? Did they have like specific access for, for whatever they were doing? No, they were playing in offline mode. That is right, an online game with trading in 2024 has a true offline mode. And we're talking about, hey, there's different aspects here. There is the offline mode that you can stay online and just hang out and chat. But literally from the Steam prompt, you can go and start in completely offline, no general chat crap mode. There's no, hey, you need to log into the server to play every two hours. No, when launching the game, just fully specify that you want to play offline before you go on a, a plane ride or playing somewhere without internet that isn't a plane, you know. No, if I've learned from handheld advertisements, you're probably going to want to be playing Lost Last Epoch uh, on an overpass or, you know, at some rooftop house party that you were definitely invited to. It's so weird to feel like you can actually have a game that you can play, like all those single player experiences that your grandpap told you about in the 1990s. <laughs> I will say uh, online's offline mode is kind of pointless. Unless you're just like really invested in listening to global chat and getting whispers or something. Because you can still designate solo self-found in, in offline mode. Uh, and that is two different solo self-founds. One for character or one for just your account. We can kind of talk about other things that are plaguing this game, but I probably won't go too deep into them. Of course, online always has that fun voodoo magic for all those people who are capable of figuring stuff out, you know, duping problems, which I'm totally confident won't, this game won't be completely plagued with duping problems, even though it has been in this past or before I edit this podcast and get it out. Okay, well, since I'm going to just say this, uh, I'm going to Google this uh, and I'm going to remind myself to truncate the silence and I guess the typing to look this up. Yeah, oh, YouTube's most recent video uh, is a video of a dupe that worked as of three days ago involving amulet selling. So infinite gold. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's just pretend that doesn't exist and it's not going to ruin the game, but whatever. It's more about the fun anyways. Trading in this game is both fun, but also it's kind of weird. Uh, it, loot is individual to each player, but for example, if you're playing with friends, you can do things like trade them items that might have dropped while you were playing together. Uh, or, for example, if you play with someone long enough, you can farm resonance while playing with them so that you can give them certain tiers of item quality later on. Once you get into, once you get far enough into the game, you can designate yourself as kind of like super solo improved self-find guild uh, or the trade guild, which looks like you can post things for auction, but it's not just like, you know, wow, auction house stupidity. Uh, you have to use favor to post things, so... You can't just feel like your items are worth a fortune. It definitely probably 
in my mind, feels like price fixing is definitely a lot harder than in some other action RPGs. But yeah, it definitely shows the developers can kind of... The developers kind of made the game the way they thought you should want to play it. And it's such a unique system that doesn't exist in a, any other ARPG, and it shows. So to close this off, kind of like with any unlimited grinding loot game, I'm invested in this game for the long haul, or at least until my interest runs out. It definitely doesn't run as well as Diablo 4 does on handhelds, so you can tell some ratings might crucify them for trying to deliver their dream of Diablo 2-2. Uh, my friend was joking when I told him that, and he said, no, it's Diablo 2 squared. I'm like, Diablo 2 squared is Diablo 4. You idiot. Controller compatibility was announced as a 1.0 feature, but even after the 1.01 update, it still feels like it's probably 95% there. Gameplay is fine, auto-targeting was overhauled, but there are certain aspects like uh, menu navigation and rebinding certain keys that don't feel good. I don't want to say like they can't be done, but it just doesn't feel right. I will end by saying this game is definitely getting ridiculed for its service stability, but as of right now, it's actually not too bad. If anything, I would avoid US West and US East, basically. I found a lot of stability playing on servers not in prime time. Like, if you're playing on, like, a weekend at, like, 10 o'clock in the afternoon, log in to Asia Northeast where it's, like, midnight. Or, you know, just pick US Central due to, I don't know, population density. Even then, when we're talking about servers, it feels like it's just, like, loot that is verified online or whatnot. Your damage and positioning, unless you're playing in a group, doesn't feel like it's dependent on, like, your server checking in. So when you're playing on something like Asia, it's not like you're being in a super rubber bandy game. It's more like you're putting up with extra hundredths of a second of delay on loot drops and transitions. So if your idea of a 10 out of 10 game is Diablo 4 with its groundbreaking changes, like a temporary passive tree, or not balancing the game like a bunch of deaf, ignorant jerks, then, you know, I'm not going to stop you. So if your idea of a 10 out of 10 game being Diablo 4 with its groundbreaking changes like temporary passive trees or not balancing the game around a bunch of deaf and ignorant de developers only to come back and have what everyone was screaming about finally heard and just have idiots applaud them for listening to the community. Give Last Epoch and their small dev team the benefit of the doubt, you know, even if you can't fathom waiting until even if you've been holding out for path of exile 2 within a week they had like a 1.0 launch after getting the servers stable so it's not like this game is just a pump and dump it's definitely worth your while even if it's just something that tides you over until you know closed beta for path of exile 2 closed beta is definitely a long way away so you might want to brush off the rust and the stupidity that maybe you got used to in diablo 4 Closed beta for Path of Exile 2 starts in June, but I mean, who knows if you'll even get in. I don't even know if I'm going to get in. Moving on to game nudes. Um, Helldivers 2 has been out for like a month, and uh, it's kind of a big deal. A big enough deal that they figured out the uh, maximum amount of players that their game, whatever, world tracking economy can possibly manage. So that was pretty cool. Uh, and my friends are so divided in playing, you know, first-person shooters, or I guess over-the-shoulder shooters, uh, and action RPGs, both were just solid enough that 
I basically turn my one month, my one game a month into two. I do have to say it's kind of funny how the tropes of you know America and Starship Troopers meet a uh, iRobot. <laughs> I can't think of any other movie where robots go rogue and are fought in mass, but I'm sure I'm just too tired to think about it. I I am a big sucker for I am a big sucker for small group kind of squad based action. The gameplay is super rudimentary, but it kind of captures what I really enjoy about a live action game. It's a ton of fun, it's well balanced, it serves a, a decent enough variety that you shouldn't be bored, uh, and rewards free-to-play players instead of punching them for not getting the premium pass. And they don't like rub it in your face every time you have to go and redeem it. You can even get enough currency by just playing the game normally to go and get the premium pass so that you can do the second round and get the extra cosmetics. It feels so nice. It feels like it's so unreal when game mechanics like microtransactions feel like they're actually friend to players, not just like lip service so that they can appease shareholders. The one nice thing about coming at this pretty cheap is I was able to get it on discount, so it's definitely going to earn a lot of my time and definitely feels a little more substantial than maybe other games that we just kind of accepted. I really hope that both Helldivers 2 and Last Epoch aren't just kind of like flavors of the month while we wait for something else to come out, but I feel like there is probably a stronger aspect for Helldivers 2 for better with friends gameplay. I was going to make this a review, but because I bought it so late, uh, I'm only like level 10 and playing on challenging, so I barely have half the loadouts unlocked. And rather than give you some uninformed preview for this game, uh, I'll just come back later in the month with an updated review with another game. A game hitting shelves in a week, uh, or I guess digital libraries in a week, for anyone who wants to play this on PlayStation 4, is Unicorn Overlord. And with that name, I mean, come on. I'm going to be 100% honest here because it snuck under my radar. And if you're wondering why I'm making such a big deal about this game sneaking under my radar, if anyone even mentioned that Vanillaware was releasing a game in like a month I, this year, you would have heard me gushing about how much I love Vanillaware games. Because Vanillaware is kind of like a weird developer. They're they're the, the kids screaming in the back of the car with the parent just trying to yell at them, why can't you just be normal? They make console-only games, which is always uh, a sad point for me. But this is the first game that they have made multi-platform and not just like a PlayStation or Nintendo exclusive or like a stupid handheld exclusive. It's completely baffling why they hate PC players. But I, for everyone who doesn't know about Vanillaware, they're the developer responsible for Odin Sphere on the PS2 if you're a dinosaur like me. Uh, Muramasa, the Demon Blade for the Wii, and I guess remastered on the Vita. They've made the uh, titular Dragon's Crown, and of course their most recent title, uh, 13 Sentinels, which I am just, I love that gameplay so much, which you do kind of have to progress through the visual novel, which is both good, but kind of very uh, time travel plotline-y. Plus it's really hard to focus on the storyline between gaming sessions. But I will say this, is, this isn't this is the first time that they've dabbled in tactical RPGs. Uh, Grand Knight's History was actually a pretty solid game despite going under the radar and only being sold on the PSP. Oddly, it was ripped off by another game called 
Grand Kingdom, which apparently was made by the developer when there was like some turmoil in the studio and some of the developers like split off after a disagreement on direction or something. The games look uncanny, like the same. The, this game though, Unicorn Overlord, is kind of like that tactical role-playing game. If a studio that was basically capable of making nearly any game decided that, you know what, Ogre Battle is the game that I want to remake, but this time we're going to make it with free movement and it's going to be real time and it's going to have a completely deeper RPG aspect. Like, if you heard all that, you'd be like, what are you going on about? But it's just like, it's a tactical-based RPG with free movement. It has, it allow once you assign members to a party, as at least this is as far as I can tell in the demo, they're kind of like set and your groups are leveled up and equipped the way that you want it. But it kind of has AI similar to, what is it, Final Fantasy XII's Gambit system. There's a shared backpack, thank God. But instead of just being like shoveled from spot to spot or going from dot to dot, there's an overworld to explore instead of kind of stapled together strings of combat and story. And I mean, I wasn't expecting a six hour demo, especially for like a, a PS4 game. Uh, and it's like, I was surprised that not many people made this connection that it was an Ogre Battle game. But like you look on Reddit now and a lot of people are catching on or the people who actually played like Ogre Battle 64 are like, hey, did you guys not play Ogre Battle 64? Which, I mean, most people will probably come back and be like, yeah, do you remember how like daunting it was playing with like that analog stick and on an N64 at like 360p? It was meticulous and it was definitely not for everyone. But I mean, otherwise it was a solid tactical RPG. Uh, like I said, I played the demo on PS4 because that was literally my only option. But man, that demo was solid. I am literally fighting the urge to purchase the title on PS4. Only because I don't want to buy another game for my Switch. Everyone who is kind of like familiar with Vanillaware games is gushing over it. I feel like there's probably going to be a, a fair amount of reviews kind of crucifying it because you have to kind of like tactical RPGs. And as always with any kind of like medieval, I don't, I don't even want to call it like a, a fire emblem game, but people who know kind of like the reactions and the lore of olden times with fire emblem and those kind of games, it's kind of hard not to just watch and re-see the redo tropes or kind of dry content. But at least like to me, the store, the story feels super unique. And like I said, every title that Vanillaware puts out is a solid banger. So I'm probably going to fight the urge, but I'm probably going to lose this battle and I'm probably going to pick up Unicorn Overlord. And you know, maybe this game doesn't feel like it's for you right now, or there's a million games right now that probably is going to steal your attention. That's fine. But just remember, the next time you go to buy whatever Fire Emblem 10, the game that knows how to deliver to its key demographic, but feels really, really stale to me, look at Unicorn Overlord instead. I can't wait until Vanillaware makes like a remastered re-release for PC of all of its games, but uh, I think I think that's just fantasy for me. Well, since I'm talking about Fire Emblem and what feels like stale games, Pokemon <laughs> announced uh, Z and A, if you uh, looked at the logo. Or, I mean, if you looked at the logo closely, you could tell that there's like a mark in the background and it's actually Pokemon Z minus, which is obviously the rating I'm going to give this game if they are just doing Pokemon X 
in Pokemon Violet's open world garbage. Obviously I use the word announced kind of loosely since the entire trailer was just like a stenciled map of the main city in X. You know, that city where if you saved on the streets you would have corrupted your entire save. I mean, yep, I was there when it happened. I used to be excited about Pokemon games, especially games like Sword and Shield I think was the last time I was like super excited about new generation of Pokemon games. But I think there's kind of a general consensus that there's a lot of people getting tired of Pokemon Company's crap. You know, it's, it's stupid logo of, if it ain't broke, don't even effort once kind of attitude. So I'm really hoping that they're not in a downward spiral. The fact that they can just throw whatever in and it's going to make millions and millions of dollars. They should really just open up the change purse for once and deliver a game worthy of being played on what I am crossing my fingers is the Switch 2 and not just become a title that is shoveled into this year so that Nintendo can pretend like it isn't going with plan H of their Switch 2 launch window. I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's kind of depressing, but as the tech industry kind of contracts, layoffs in mass are kind of hitting everywhere. Sony laid off 900 employees. Part of that was closing their London studio, which to be fair, I had to Google what games they released. And I think the world can survive knowing that the studio mostly known for SingStar and games I couldn't even tell you what they were about because I've never heard them before are likely going down with this studio. EA cancelled a Star Wars game. Oh no. I mean, thank God. It really took playing Force Unleashed and uh, Jedi Survivor to drive home the fact that AAA game studios are just not the source of fun or innovation for gameplay anymore. Gearbox is rumored to be uh, close to being sold thanks to Embracer Group, kind of like buying up every single cool game IP that they could see, only to come back and say that their venture capitalist group like bailed and <laughs> didn't give them the money that they promised them they were going to get. Like, did you not have this shit in writing before making things harder for all us Deus Ex fans to ever get a game again? I can't see though Gearbox being like an actual successful title studio with Borderlands, I imagine they're just trying to cut ties with this flop of a regime. Last piece of news I'll leave you with is Elden Ring's upcoming DLC. We've known about a DLC in the works for some time now, but we did have to wait patiently until Papa From Software was ready to tell us about it. Yep, I mean even after seeing the trailer for Shadow of the Erd Tree, all I know is there's shadows, there's an Erd Tree, and I'm prepared to resume pain. That is prepared to resume the pain and suffering that is obviously coming in June. But that's it for the episode. Thanks again for tuning in. Really appreciate you sticking around, and we'll catch you in the next episode. My name is Dan. Bye for now.